over the last 12 months or so, a great reawakening has been happening in the consciousness of sports fans. Some are just now discovering that female college and professional players can generate significant revenues for both their schools and employers and themselves, and that, that understanding is growing. The television eyeballs for the recent WNBA championship series broke records. Game two alone averaged almost 800,000 viewers on ESPN. After 25 years, the game has arrived both as a social media influencer and finally receiving some of the respect it has long been denied by broadcasters and marketers. College basketball has benefited from the same ecosystem. The 2021 Women's Final Four Championship game averaged over 4 million viewers, despite much controversy surrounding the treatment of women athletes when it came to comparing facilities and access to the men. So what will it take for the college athletic departments to both accept and adjust to this new world order? that some women's sports should be treated as substantial revenue-generating sports. I have just the expert to tackle this question. David Berry is a sports economist and a professor at Southern Utah University. Known by his Twitter handle, Wages of Wins, David is an outspoken advocate for the underserved and underappreciated potential in women's athletics. David is also a contributor to my new book, Sport Finance, Where the Money Comes From and Where the Money Goes authoring a fantastic chapter on the comparisons between the financial growth of the NBA and the WNBA. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's talk let's a little talk. about the growth trends in women's basketball. It seems as if 2021 is the year that turned the corner. What's your take on all of this? Well, I, I don't know that it's, it's turned the corner as much as it's just a continuation of, of growth. Uh, if you go back into the revenue data, uh, women's basketball about 20 years ago, according to the Department of Education, was generating collectively in Division One about $300 million in revenue. Uh, now it's close to a billion. Uh, women's basketball today is about what men's basketball was 20 years ago in terms of revenue. Uh, and so if we think of men's basketball 20 years ago as major revenue producing sport, that's what we think, and I think people think that, uh, then we would think today that women's basketball is a major revenue generator. Now, they're not treated that way. We saw with the whole weight room issue at the tournament that the NCAA doesn't treat them like they're major right. revenue producing. Uh, and also that we know that revenue would be a lot higher if the NCAA was better at negotiating deals, uh, and they don't do that. Uh, so, but there is a very active fan base. Uh, they get pretty big crowds for their games. Um, the ratings for the tournament are pretty high. Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's certainly growing, which is exactly, this is exactly what you'd expect to have happen. Uh, women's sports is obviously held back by a history of discrimination. Uh, and so title nine starts to change that, but title nine is only 50 years ago. Uh, it takes decades to build fan bases. And so women's sports is just getting to a point where they've been around long enough to build any kind of fan base. What we're seeing with women's basketball, and also if you look at women's tennis, women's sports do build fan bases similar to what we saw in men's sports if you give them enough time, which is exactly what you would think would happen. Um, and that's, I think, is a really optimistic story because it tells us that in another 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the WNBA will start to look like the NBA and National Women's Soccer League will look like the major men's soccer leagues. And th that's where all this is going. Uh, but it just takes time for the fan bases to build up because fandom is inherited typically from parents 
And if the parents weren't fans, then you're probably not going to be fans either. Uh, it's hard for adults to become fans. It's a little bit like, because fandom is an addiction, right? I mean, that's what it really is. You're addicted to these things. You can't stop thinking about it. You spend a lot of your time. It, it, it's, it's really quite bizarre, right? Because when your team wins, you're happy. And when your team loses, you're sad. But you didn't participate in any of this, right? <laughs> right. So your life before and after the game is exactly the same. And yet the outcome of the game affects your mood for the rest of the day. And you're like, and, and for some people, a lot longer than that. Uh, and you're like, but you weren't actually involved in that. <laughs> that, that was, you know, and, and sports fans say it like that, right? We won. Well, well, we, we, there's no we, they won. And, and this is something I think a lot of fans don't appreciate. The participants in the contest don't seem to have the same level of emotional attachment as the fans do. <laughs> <laughs> so yes um I, I i somebody told me this story once they went to a red sox game and and of course red sox and they're playing the yankees and that's a huge rivalry right so the red sox are very the red sox fans are very into this he said after the game i went to a restaurant and there were the red sox and yankees players eating together you're like but i thought they hate each other well yeah, they don't hate, they hate each, other. each other right exactly <laughs> they don't hate each other they are more than willing to switch teams if you pay them they don't care what it's like it's just a uniform it's whatever you're a yankee okay exactly well and, and, and you, you and i spent a few minutes just before we started talking about our mutual um dedication to our original home football teams which for you is detroit lions for me is the philadelphia eagles we're both despondent over how bad they are this year, but we still talk about them. Of course, I spend a lot of my time thinking about it, and it's it's <laughs> and it's and and that's the thing, and and that kind of a fandom, um, you know, my Lions fandom begins as a child. I grew up in Detroit. I was taught to be a Lions fan, and that's the team that I've always followed. Even as my family left Detroit and we went other places, I kept following the Lions. That's my team, and I've tried in my life to switch because it would be beneficial to me to switch from the Lions. Lions don't win. I should follow somebody who wins once in a while. Um, it would have been great had when I came to Southern Utah, which is not very far from Phoenix, Arizona, if I became an Arizona Cardinals fan. They are 7-0 right now. If I were an Arizona Cardinals fan, I would be ecstatic right now. But I'm not an Arizona Cardinals fan. I can't follow them. I don't have any history with them. And so it's like I can't develop any more than a casual interest in the teams around me because I don't have that history and so therefore I don't know the players and I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't put what I'm seeing in context. This is a big part of fandom going back to women's sports. A lot of fandom is when you're watching an event right now, you're thinking about how does that compare to something I saw 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, and so when you think about the NBA, LeBron James has significance because there was Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan had significance because there was Dr. J and Dr. J had significance because there's Elgin Baylor. But if you go back to Elgin Baylor, early 1960s, he's playing before three or 4,000 fans. There's nobody watching him because there's no, there are no NBA fans. There's no history with that. And so when, if you're going back to the 1950s, you say Lakers are going to play Celtics. Fans would go, what? what exactly is a Laker and what is a Celtic? Why, ex you know, and for one thing, it's not Celtic, it's Celtic, okay? <laughs> Let's just be honest about this. Right, you, right. You, you mispronounce this word consistently. It's Celtic, not Celtic. And what exactly, why did you name your basketball team 
after a British tribe from 2000 years ago. <laughs> Thanks. Were, did they, were they playing basketball at Stonehenge? What exactly is the connection here? Are you just picking random words? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so yeah. the fans don't have any, any, any reference point to put what they're watching into perspective. And so that diminishes greatly the interest. You flash forward today, when the Lakers today play the Celtics today, a lot of the fans, what they're watching in their head this is Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Yeah. You're like, okay, there is no magic on the floor and there's no Larry on the floor. Yeah, but it's kind of the same thing, though, isn't it? It's, a, it's the Celtics and it's a weak rivalry. Okay, so none of these players were involved in any of that rivalry. <laughs> so we're, we're, building that. we're building that with the women's sports now. We've had, we might yes. be in a second or third generation of women athletes that we're familiar with. If you think about it in terms of bas- women's basketball, we might go back to Nancy Lieberman, you know, yes. Ann Donovan and, and Ann Myers, who, who were sort of the first generation of semi, semi-professional basketball players. And now you look at Paige, Paige Bueller's or Paige Buckets, who's coming out of UConn, you know, and how well those athletes yeah. are. So you can and, and if you sort of, exactly. Yeah. And if you put that in perspective, you know, uh, Nancy Lieberman and Ann Donovan are essentially George Mikan. Yeah, right. They're, right. They're at the very beginning or even before George Michael. Right. And so you're, you're at the very, very beginning and it's, it, and, and it's really hard for fans to start to grasp onto that. Now today, I think what you're looking at with WNBA players are really the equivalent of, of Oscar Robertson or maybe Bill Russell, those kind of players. And so right now those players don't have huge fan bases relative to what we're going to see in 30 years. But 30 years from now, they have a big enough fan base that 30 years from now, you're going to see stories written about, they're going to say about this woman playing basketball. And they're going to say, she's like Candace Parker. And then older people like us are going to go, well, that's just bullshit. There's no way in the world that's Candace Parker. I saw Candace Parker play and I don't know who the hell this, this person's nowhere near Candace Parker. Candace Parker would dribble circles around this person. Right. And, and those are the kind of conversation you have. The same kind of conversation you have today when people say, you know, LeBron's better than Michael Jordan. And people right. are like, right. okay, that's nuts. Michael Jordan was was God and LeBron's just some dude right and 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 so you see that but that's history gives you that and that those conversations are what makes the sport experience yeah what it is if you try to do all these events totally in isolation where it's just a competition between two teams that nobody can recognize that's what the National Women's Soccer League is right now right it's we 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 know some of the players you know, we know some of the players, but the problem becomes when you put them on teams, when Rapino plays for the Seattle Reign, okay, people are like, well, I know who that is. What's, what's the Seattle Reign? Right, right. You know, and it's like, I, and they're playing, well, they're playing the Portland Thorn. Well, is that, a, is that a rivalry game? Is that an important game? Is there some kind of history there? Should I, and it's like, I don't have any context as a fan to know what it is I'm watching. And so I can watch the player. That's great. I like the player. But I don't know what the contest is about. And so let me ask you this. So if I'm somebody who uh, as, as a president or somebody who's vested interest in trying to grow revenues for my athletic department, I may oversee the athletics department. And I realize I recognize that there's a there's real growth opportunity here for women's sports in college athletics. What kinds of things could I do to help accelerate that process, do you think, on my campus? Yeah, see, that's a, that's a great question, isn't it? Um, 
we we know the history of the men's sports and they didn't accelerate. <laughs> so we, we know they didn't do it. <laughs> we know we know there never was any acceleration. Yeah. So it's like so they're like, what can we do to accelerate this? Well, we know the history and there wasn't. Uh, so the NBA uh, started in 1946. Uh, 25 years into its existence, it still was drawing less than 10,000 fans a game. That was 25 right. years later. Uh, nobody saw Oscar Robinson play. Nobody saw Bill Russell play. Well, Chamberlain scored 100 points in a game in 1962 when the NBA was 15 years old. And the league at that point, and he played that game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And the reason why it was in Hershey and not Philadelphia, where we played for, is because they were just desperate to find fans anywhere. They're just playing in random places. Um, and that was a big part of the fandom of, of what they were doing. And so um, and so we know they did that. We, we know they, they moved the games around. Did that help? Not really. Uh, <laughs> it didn't make a lot of difference. So we know, we know they did try certain things that didn't okay, seem but to work. We have all this, all these media platforms, all these ways to engage yeah. with fans, you know, all, and new ways to measure that engagement. So yes. is there something we could do to jumpstart? Maybe, that? see, and that's a big thing. So that was the whole big part of that, that interview I gave with Bloomberg, and they were talking about that. So now that there's social media and we can track these things and we can look at these things we do know this women's sports fans are different than than men's sports fans in that because women face this history of discrimination both in terms of historically banning it but also the fact that the sports media doesn't give them any coverage and they don't get the public investment and they don't get the private investment so they're discriminated on all these different levels um, and and women's sports fans have had to learn how to be technologically savvy because you got to find where the games are you got to find where the coverage is you got to you got to look for these things uh, and so you can take advantage of that, the fact that these are more sophisticated fans and you can reach out to them. Um, what, I think there's a, there's a tendency to try and focus on the players. Maybe if we can connect you to players. Now, there, there's some validity to that. Um, women's tennis does really well. Uh, women's, uh, if you look at marsh, mixed martial arts and, and, and boxing, does really well. And that's because people can form an emotional attachment to a person yeah. very quickly. So you can build a fan base that way. And I think that's kind of what they're trying to do with this. Is it, what is it called? Athletics, Athletes United? Um, uh, the, athlete, the, the data, the data sports innovation, is it the sports information data company? No, it, it's the, it's the new, the new league that they created Athletes United. Oh, with yeah, they have, yes, they have exactly. Cross, they have softball and they have, yes. so they're, Lacrosse, they're trying to create a league where the focus is on the players and they have player rankings and not okay. on the team. The teams are random. Um, and, and maybe that'll work. Uh, maybe that'll work, you know, because that, there is, there is a lot of evidence that people connect to players, but if you're going to build a traditional sports league, and that's true for colleges and for professionals. So if you're going to build a, a college sports team, it's the team they're rooting for and not the players. Um, you're going to have to find a way to emotionally connect those fans to the team. Now colleges have an advantage their alumni are already emotionally attached to them. Um, and so I know if you're a, a Nebraska fan, that when the women in play volleyball or the women play basketball, you already have a fan base that's interested in the outcome. They already know who they're rooting for when they see the game. That makes a huge difference. So that's why college sports does better than the professional sports at this point, because the fan base exists. Um, if you're going to do it at the professional level, at some point you're going to have to build an emotional attachment to these teams, and the teams only exist in our minds. There is no such thing as a Seattle Reign. Uh, there's no thing as the Minnesota Lynx. And so you got to somehow connect in your brain. I'm a fan of this thing that doesn't really actually exist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wish I knew some way to make that happen for people. It strikes me as, as where senior leaders might be able to help, help with this is that we tend to focus on 
the only game or, or, or event that can unify our alumni is if we have a homecoming weekend around football. And schools particularly that don't have football uh, teams on their campuses, I think really struggle with trying to create a, a unifying event. Can we ever get away from the idea that we have to have football on campus to be able to pull everybody together? It seems yeah. like old thinking. Okay, you definitely yeah. could do that for every single one of your sports. You could yeah. do that. I, I think, you know, one thing that you wanna do, I would imagine, is, is reach out to your alumni and emphasize what you're doing in other sports. Don't just talk about football. Get Because the fan base, again, exists. They, they, they're gonna root for their school. If you tell them there's something to root for, um, that would help. Uh, and so it, it does go back to marketing efforts. How much marketing are you putting into this? Uh, are you putting most of your marketing effort into football and men's basketball? I, I, I would emphasize to athletic directors in terms of, of revenue potential uh, going forward. There yeah. probably isn't going to be a whole lot of growth in football and men's basketball. Um, but there is a lot of growth in women's sports. So if you're looking at where you should put your marketing dollars, you know, market the women's sports because that's where you're going to see the growth. Uh, you, have a lot of, you have a lot of fans out there that haven't been converted yet. And you can convert them because – you're a college and they're already converted to your, your organization. Uh, and so, you know, you would find there would be a lot of crossover, uh, but you have to convince the athletic directors to do that. And there is, a, there is an impediment to this because the athletic director knows their job depends on football and men's basketball. That's why you see such odd, these USA Today's written about this and I, I've been interviewed for these kind of stories. Uh, my favorite example, this is University of Arizona. Arizona announced last October, we're gonna, we have budget cuts. COVID has just devastated our budget. We got to cut budgets. So we're going to cut these positions, uh, marketing positions, stats positions, you know, these people who make $80,000 a year. Uh, and then Arizona goes against Arizona State in, in a football game, biggest game of the year for the Arizona fans, and they lose like 70 to 10. And then two days later, the athletic goes, oh, we got to fire that football coach. <laughs> right. And you're like, okay, to fire a head football coach is going to cost you, you know, millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you didn't have millions of dollars. You didn't have a hundred thousand dollars to pay this marketing person. Yeah, but I now have millions of dollars for it. Well, why is that? Well, here's the deal. Um, if we don't fix the football team, they're going to fire me next. So <laughs> you're gone. I got millions of dollars to pay for that. You know, no alumni are calling me to save the marketing person, <laughs> but they're definitely calling me about this football game because that was horrible. Yeah, and, and, and you can imagine. How many phone calls and text messages the athletic director and the university president at Arizona got during that game? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, this, is, this is a total humiliating disaster, and it's your fault. Yeah. And, and, and you've got all these alumni, and, and that's the weird thing about fandom. You have all these alumni whose entire life is being devastated because, you know, 19, 20-year-old football players didn't perform well. Yeah. And they're like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And you're like, okay, it's not happening to you. You're not playing this game. And what difference does it make? Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, you know, and, and that's how, that's how these sports fans are. Uh, we once had, um, I don't know if you remember the player, Paul Shirley, he was a star basketball player at Iowa state. And then he played in the NBA briefly and played overseas. He wrote a book called, can I keep my Jersey? Um, about his, uh, it's a very humorous book about his time in professional basketball, but I had him on, on, on the SU campus. And he told me once, he said, it was really bizarre when I was starring at Iowa State. You'd look up in the stands and these old men were just incredibly irate and angry over what we were doing. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, we're 20 years old. I mean, we're not going to win every game, <laughs> but sometimes we lose. And I, and I, and I often tell, you know, athletes, but I have student athletes in my class. I go, I am shocked 
when I'm watching a college football game that any of the plays go well. Cause I have these students in my class and they're not getting it. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? You knew the play. You don't, you didn't know this. I told you that five times. <laughs> That's really well, on this play. I know I'm doing that. How do you remember all that? You can't remember yeah. this thing in the class. And, and it's like, and these announcers are like, I don't understand why he didn't know to keep with that guy. Well, I had him in class and he couldn't remember the civil war came after the revolutionary war. So I'm not surprised he couldn't figure this part out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you bring up a good point is that we, we end up cutting pennies and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on things that really demonstrate what our values are. And I guess what we need to do, and one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you was, is help people understand that if you're chasing new dollars, if that's really what you need to do, then, then women's sports has value for you and has exactly, value, exactly. And that's, that's, a, that's, yeah, that's everything. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, the problem is getting those athletic directors to shift their focus. That's it. Yes. It is their jobs depend on these things. Uh, and, 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 the, and the thing is, is what you saw with COVID was the same thing we've seen with title nine for 50 years is that they will cut men's programs and, and, and then they'll blame something else rather than say what they're doing. And what they're doing is I need the money to spend on football and men's basketball. And you're like, and I don't want to say that because, you know, I don't want to say I cut men's gymnastics for my football team. That's so what right. I do is I say I cut men's gymnastics because Title IX made me. That, that, that's right. So let me ask you the, a question about this word value. When people are trying to value how much to spend on broadcast rights for a particular event or a particular season, how, how do you value women's sports when the traditional metric has been, you know, broadcast linear television viewers? So we're trying to look at it from a perspective of all the different ways that women's sports fans engage, whether it be on Twitter or on Snapchat or Instagram or buying, you know, NIL valued products. How do we measure value? Help, help people understand what that means in terms of seeing. Well, yeah, that's the really hard part because the traditional yeah. measures are going to focus on the traditional broadcasting. And, and that right. is, and that, again, these are, these are more technologically sophisticated fans. So they're probably not going to be watching in ways that you can measure as, as you've done in the past. The men, if you're watching men's sports, you don't have to try very hard. You can watch it on your local, you know, dish network, you know, cable TV. It's very easy. Uh, but if you're watching women's sports, a lot of it's going to be online. A lot of, and, and, and women and women's sports fans get used to that. Yeah. So even if it is available in the broadcasting uh, arena, they may still be watching it online because they're just used to doing it that way. Yeah. Uh, and so it's hard for you to capture those things. Um, that makes things a lot more difficult for you to measure what the engagement is. Uh, and it requires that you be actually more sophisticated in how you measure these things. Of course, if you don't want to measure it in the first place, you certainly aren't going to make any effort to be sophisticated in how you're doing it. So, so a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of what we see in women's sports is men doing self-fulfilling prophecies. They look at the data that confirms what they want to see in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these, the fact matters, I think if you were to do a survey of athletic directors and ask them, what is your favorite sport? Why did you get into athletic administration? They would tell you it's, it's football and men's basketball. In fact, many of them are alumni of football and men's basketball. That's what they think is their primary mission. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you're like, okay, well then that's why you're not putting money into these things. Um, I wrote my dissertation. I wrote it on the launch of the Big Ten Network. I wanted to understand the thinking and the administrative decision making behind, you know, gathering all your media rights for the conference and putting them in one place and then trying at that point to be 50 percent women's sports and 50 percent men's sports. They were they made it very clear that that's what they were going to be about. 
And I interviewed uh, uh, Mark Silver Silverstein, who was the uh, the head of the Big, Big Ten Network at that point. And I said to him, I said, Mark, how are you going to accomplish this? Because there's not enough football and men's basketball games to keep every fan watching. He goes, no, no, no. We're going to get people to buy into their school programs. So if you're an Indiana football fan, then we expect you're going to want to be an Indiana fan across all of the sports that we broadcast. And we're going to set up Indiana days or Iowa days or Nebraska days or those types of things. And we hope that we'll keep people engaged. Well, after about four years, they figured out that wasn't working. So now what's happened is that content has shifted off to the BTN plus to the streaming and everything else is kind of like the pre-football game, the pre-pre-football game coaches show, the pre that post game and, yeah. and all the different wrap ups and highlights and everything around football because people just weren't following it. Do you see a shift there? Well, that's the problem. Now, how much time do they give it? Four years. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah. You can't build up anything in four yeah. years. That's not going to yeah. happen. So right. it's like, you want to do something, you want to build up a fan base and I do it in four years. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, and that's the problem with when men are doing this. It's like, yeah. they have no sense of the history. If, if the men who behave the way they do with respect to women's sports, they did this respect to men's sports. There would be no NFL, NBA, major league yeah. baseball. They've all gone out of business because they didn't make any money for decades and they would have all given up. They said, there's no money in this. Why am I doing this? And, and all we would have today is college sports because the professional sports never would have got off the ground. Uh, but instead, men, you know, and I, 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 I use this phrase a lot. Men love investing in men. Men love men. When it comes to sports, men love men. Um, and they really do love men. And so they, they, they pour money into it. And they pour coverage into it. They, this is the biggest thing they do. Uh, and, uh, and so, and then when it comes to women's sports, they're like, we tried something and it didn't work. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. One time. It's absolutely stunning to me that that happens. I did read something the other day. Maybe you wrote it on Twitter about um, the Roonies and the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was the Bloomberg how long, story. How long they've, I love that story. That's the Bloomberg <laughs> story. I love that story. It's one of my go ahead, favorites. Yeah, go ahead. Tell it the story. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I, I think I told this story. Uh, Ivan Kelly, Victor Matheson, I wrote a book on the economics of the Super Bowl. And I might have written it in there. Um, um, if not, I'm working on a book on women in sports with Neff Walker and it'll be in there. Uh, but I, I told the story to Bloomberg cause I, I love the story. Uh, and so, um, and so, yeah, and, 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 and so, uh, Art Rooney, uh, it's 1933. Uh, the NFL at this point is about 12 years old. They have completely failed. Uh, they've had, you know, well over 40 different franchises have entered into the NFL at some point in the last 12 years. 90% of them completely went out of business. So it is a, and, and, and 1933 is the, we're in the middle of the Great Depression. So this is like, NFL is a failed business. There isn't any demand for it. There's no television. All of their revenue is from the gate. Football is a lousy spectator sport. It's cold. You can't see the field. Um, it's just horrible as a spectator sport. It works. And this is why when you go like see a, a Cowboys game today, you notice in the, in the in the stadium, you're not seeing the field. There's a big giant screen that goes for 100 yards. Yes. <laughs> what they're watching yes, is yes, it's yes, the yes. biggest sports bar ever. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. and down there below is a little tiny field. And you know that what you're seeing on that screen is down there, but you can't see any of that. It's like, well, I guess they're down there. Um, <laughs> they're down there someplace, <laughs> but you can't see any of it. Right, um, right. And so, and so that's that's the NFL. It's just not a very good business. But Art Rooney loves football, and he wants to be involved. And somehow he had fifteen thousand dollars. Now, this is not a very successful businessman. He's not a very rich man. This is not a he's not a Rockefeller. But he's got fifteen thousand dollars, 
um, which is a pretty good sum of money in 1933. And he decides to plunge it all into the Pittsburgh Steelers. Okay, so he forms this football team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Okay, that's great. Um, he then weathers the rest of the 1930s. Um, he goes through World War II, where the players all leave. He continues to invest in this. He comes out of World War II, and he keeps putting money into this. And this is not even a good football team. For the first 40 years that Rooney owns the Steelers, they went to one playoff game against your Philadelphia Eagles, and they scored no points. <laughs> so for 40 years, Art Rooney puts money into the Steelers. He doesn't make money. Um, he doesn't see any winning and he keeps doing it because he loves football. Right. And then finally, when he's an old man, uh, they get lucky in the draft. They draft a bunch of hall of famers in the early 1970s. And of course it was totally by luck because there's no way in the world they knew any of this stuff, but it turns <laughs> out they got really lucky. Uh, and they hired, they, they drafted a bunch of people and suddenly he has a Super Bowl team and he gets to see his team win a Super Bowl. And then his grandson eventually inherits his team. And now in 2020, as Bloomberg pointed out, the team is worth three and a half billion dollars. So that $15,000 investment becomes a three and a half billion dollar franchise. Well, 90, 90 odd years later. Um, and so his grandson is tremendously grateful that his, that his grandfather did all that for all those because you can imagine you know for 40 years his team is traveling by bus he doesn't have any money uh he's just keeping throwing money down this pit he's not a rich guy uh he's part of this league that's not going anywhere uh doesn't have very many fans uh they don't get much coverage from the media um and then his grandson inherits this three and a half billion dollar franchise uh i imagine his grandson lives in a far bigger house than his grandfather ever lived in um, and he gets to sit in the owner's box and watch his, his team play before, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of fans every year. And he gets to say, you know, isn't this great? Yeah, yeah, you inherit it's because your grandfather did that for 40 years, which was stupid. If, if you went back and said, okay, let's look at this from a financial perspective. Are you, is this worth your investment? No, the money you're throwing into this isn't going anywhere. But he kept doing it. And eventually he builds this fan base that is, you know, you know, this, the, uh, he gets a large number of people addicted to his team. And now, now he's got this fan base that, that just keeps giving him money. And the thing about it is what's really cool about, about addiction is they keep giving him money, even if the product's no good. See, that's the cool thing. Eagles fans, Lions fans, yeah, they will keep going to the games and keep yeah. giving those owners money, even though they're giving them a product that they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my favorite Lions story is when they were 0-16 that year, uh, there were people who showed up to Lions games in the jerseys of the opposing team as a protest. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, yeah, but you still gave them money to get into the <laughs> – what do they care? We, I no, want the right be, to complain. I want the right to complain. But that would be like going to a McDonald's and ordering McDonald's food but wearing a Burger King T-shirt. It's like, I don't care what T-shirt you wear. You're here no. still giving me money. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's like, that's not a protest. What do I – see, I'm wearing a Burger King T-shirt. So you know, I like Burger King better. But, but you're out of McDonald's. <laughs> okay, my last my last question for you, and this has been a great conversation, but I want you to look into your crystal ball a little bit. And I was going to ask you about the NCAA breaking up, but I'm really thinking about more about Angel City, the uh, the new franchise in, in the NWSL in, in Los Angeles that's going to break. And it's got all of these incredibly well-known women investors. 
that are plunging. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much money in, but they, they have more money than they probably know what to do with. They have so many people investing. Where do you see that franchise going at this point? What do you think? It, it was a big part of the Bloomberg story, and and I I love their enthusiasm. I thought it was great. Um, they pointed out in the story we have, we signed exactly one player. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Like, okay, you're going to actually have to build a roster. You That's are going to have to do that at yes. some point. You're going to. It's great. You're doing the investment and you're doing the community engagement, and that's all fantastic. Yes. But at some point, it is a sports team. You'll have to acquire players and coaches, and you'll have to do all those things. Yes. And, do, and you're going to have, have to have some level. Of a friend of mine is the head coach, so there you go. Yeah. Yes. So you, so you, so you, you have to do all those things. And, and even though you've done all those things and you've had all that investment, I'm sorry, it's, it's a brand new sports league. It is going to take time to build up a fan base. And I, 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 I love the fact that, that all those women are enthusiastic about this. But again, it's, I, I, I really hope they think about that Art Rooney story. You want to be Art Rooney. This is, this is a 50-year adventure. In 50 years, you got to think about 50 years. I don't want you to, you should not be looking at your profit statements for the next 10 years. You should think 50 years from now, what's this going to be? You know, and so, yes, you're right. Serena Williams, you're not going to see this. <laughs> your kids or your grandkids might appreciate your investment. You are probably never going to appreciate this because it's just going to take so long yeah, yeah. for you to get a fan base that is going to be, that's going to be addicted to what you're offering them. And you can do all the community engagement you want and stuff. And that's all fantastic. But at the end of the day, it's going to take you time to build that up. And until that time passes again, I, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I would like to think there's some shortcut to build a fan base. I just know from men's sports history, they never found one. Yeah. So maybe there is one, <laughs> maybe we'll find it, but it seems to me that addiction takes time to build. Yeah. And I think it's easier for children to build up that addiction than it is for adults. It's, 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 it goes back to, you think about something as simple as whether you drink Coke or Pepsi. You know, whether you're a Coke fan or a Pepsi fan or neither was established when you were a kid. It was not established when you were an adult. Nobody at 30 picks up a Coke and goes, oh, Coke. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I'm sorry. By then you already had Coke and you've already decided. Like it, don't like it, I'm indifferent. Right. And, and that's already been decided. And no amount of advertising by Coke at 30 is going to change that preference. That's right. And I think it's very similar as a sports fan. I, I've become sports fans of things. You know, I'm a Minnesota Lynx fan. But frankly, I'm a Minnesota Lynx fan because I know people with Minnesota Lynx. <laughs> that's, that's made right. a huge difference. That's right. That's, yeah, right. that's made a huge difference. That's, that's a totally, you know, I, I've talked to Cheryl Reeve, so I know what I'm rooting for. I don't know that I could become a huge fan in the same way I'm a Lions fan at my age because I don't have any history with it. And, and so it's, it becomes more difficult to build up those fan bases. It's really something you want little kids to do. So, so maybe that's the secret. Maybe the secret is Angel City's just got to throw money into getting as many kids at these games as you yeah. possibly can. Get them, yeah. give out free merchandise to kids get the, there it is. I solved the problem. Okay. I didn't know the answer so many minutes ago. I came up with the answer. So this is the great example of tall white male confidence. So I don't know the answer 20 minutes ago, but now I have the answer. Get the little <laughs> kid addicted. So there you go. There you go. I solved your problem for you. Let me tweet that out. I'll contact the angel city people. I figured out your as problem. You for you. As, as you well should. done. I'm glad I could fix your problem for you. Let me know if you need anything else. Um, 
<laughs> David Barry, I really want to thank you for, for making this an enjoyable conversation. It's a tough conversation, but it's important to know. And I think our bottom line, our takeaway is you have to give everything time because nothing's right. going to be able to speed things up. So it just takes time. So, and, and get little and get little kids addicted. That, that's my other thing. Get little and, and get the little kids addicted. So, so hang out at parks and hand out jerseys of Angel City to them and go. Well, thank you, you so much. being an Angel City fan. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for joining that us on great. the podcast. That was really great. Thank you. It was fun.